Almighty God, you are our great, triumphant, glorious, and all-powerful God. You and you alone provide and deliver and conquer, and you will receive your people by faith. Lord, grant us faith this morning to trust your wise and good counsel. Give us confident faith as we receive from your hand both the beautiful blessings that you bestow upon us and also the difficult providences that so often come. Lord, you promise your presence, and in this calls us to find our abiding comfort and joy and hope. Lord, turn our hearts to look for your eternal reward, your heavenly home, which has foundations which cannot be shaken. And grant us grace for the journey as we travel as exiles and strangers in this world, ever longing for the day when we can be with you in our better country, the one that you promised us, the one of rest. Now to God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at the second half of the message I started last week. Last week I began and we were looking at uh, verses 23 Uh, all the way down through verse 31. Only did half of that text last week. Um, This week we're going to do the second half. The portion we did last week was in verses 23 through 27. And this week we're going to be looking specifically at verses 28 through 31. I don't know about you, but I often feel it. Specifically, I guess, most, most uniquely in my role as a father, but also often in my role as a pastor. I feel so often... As if the world and everything in it is like a, uh, the, the tsunami wave that's coming at my family or coming at our congregation. And that this tsunami wave is unstoppable. There's no way I can push it back. And any effort to do that only, only is, is meaningless and small. And that the water is going to fill every crevice and every portion of our lives so that in the case of my family, I fear that they're so saturated by the world and the things of the world, how can I hope uh, that, they will not, that they will not accept it and want it? How can I hope in our congregation when the world is pushing in and, and, and like the wave of the tsunami coming around each and every one of us and so saturating us with the things of the world, with the pleasures of the world, with the wants of the world, for us not to be overcome and just taken up with the swell of that tsunami? It is amazing to think when we think about the, the influences that are in our homes and in our church. Think about the, the, uh, the media and the, in, the outlets that um, are coming to us from every direction, specifically our children and their tender consciences and the world that's feeding them all of these things so that they, can, so, so that they are being convinced that the lusts of this world are things that they can pursue and that will fill them and satisfy them. And it's a lie, isn't it? How do we push that back? How do we keep that from happening? I feel overwhelmed sometimes. Maybe you feel that way. And this morning, 
I want us to come to our text and acknowledge that we are not alone in that feeling of the world and all of its pressures coming at us. That we are very familiar, very similar to those who are in our text this morning, who are New Testament Christians in this book, these young Jewish church here, who felt like the world and everything around it was coming in on them and that they were being pushed out. What will sustain them? What will keep them with the mighty fortresses, the mighty, the mighty things that are being pushed against them with the culture and with the influences and with the government and with all these powers and influences coming not only into their families but into their church? What is going to thwart those plans to bring, to draw us away from God and the things of God? What's going to thwart that? And our pastor this morning in this passage says it will only be done by faith. By faith. So this morning my prayer is that we as a congregation will give up because the tsunami is too strong, isn't it? I mean, just when you feel like you've guarded and protected your child enough or your church enough or your family member enough, then here comes another, another avenue for them to be getting more of the things of the world and be taken in by it. What's going to triumph? What's going to be a faith? Is the faith of the Lord. So last week we looked at Moses and specifically his outlook. What he was seeing and that sight was causing him, I talked about last week, the outlook of triumphant faith. And we looked at verses 23 through uh, 27. And we said that this triumphant faith, notice in verse 23, it says that, um, that Moses' parents had faith. Why? Because they saw that the child was beautiful. That sight there. And then in verse 26, it says that, that, that Moses was one who refused the, the, the things of the world, the pleasures and the things of, and, and position and the, and, the, and the prosperity of the uh, uh, possessions of, of Egypt. Why? Because he was, verse 26, looking to the reward. Do you see that? His outlook. And then finally, Moses left Egypt, seeing him who is invisible, seeing his God. He chose to leave uh, Egypt. Phil, can you turn the air up just a bit? I have a lot of ladies shivering. And if we could do that, that will help, maybe. Thank you, sir. This week, we're going to take a turn from Moses' outlook to, and here, here's, the, here's the main overarching thing, is the ability of this triumphant faith. Last week, we looked at the outlook of this triumphant faith. This week, we're going to be looking at the ability of this triumphant faith. In other words, what can this triumphant faith do? How has it worked in the past? And this pastor here is telling this congregation, this congregation of Hebrew Christians, he's saying, I want you to look at what this triumphant faith has done in the past, what it was able to do, and I want that to be an encouragement to you, those of you who are feeling like you're being overwhelmed by the things of the world and by what's coming at you. This chapter, now, not this book, but this chapter alone, by faith, that phrase occurs 18 times. The last four of those 18 times are in our text this morning in verses 28 through 31. And so we're going to be looking at these last four by faith experiences. And so there's going to be four points to our message this morning, each key to this by faith experience. One in each one of our verses this morning, 20, uh, 28 through 31. So verse 28, this is a faith to keep. Point number one, a faith to keep. Point number two, a faith to cross over. This is verse 29. Point number three, a faith to conquer. Verse 30, 
Point number four, a faith to receive. A faith to receive, verse 31. Verse 31, a faith to keep, a faith to cross over, a faith to conquer, and a faith to receive. And I want us to look at our text and hang our thoughts on these headings if we could. Point number one, a faith to keep. Now, as I'm looking at this text, this pastor is turning his congregation back to the Old Testament specifically. Many of us know these stories well. I would encourage you, maybe even today, to go back and read these texts. You may want to thumb back there if you want to go and look with me as I'm going back and looking at these texts, and not only in Exodus, but also in the book of Joshua. You may want to do that. You may want to just write these texts down so that you can look at those later. But I'm going to be back and forth from the Old Testament to the New this morning, and I want us to not get lost in moving back and forth. If you want to just stay here, In Hebrews 11, I'll be coming back to this portion every time. But I want to be reading texts from the Old Testament because that's what this pastor is doing. He's referring his congregation back to the Old Testament of how this faith in the lives of these Old Testament saints was able to accomplish great things and to be triumphant. Heading number one, faith to keep. Look at with me at verse 28. By faith, he, meaning Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, he kept the Passover. This is not only the reason it mentions here how Moses is keeping the Passover. It wasn't just that Moses did it, but Moses, in fact, instituted this Passover. He started this thing called the Passover, and he does this in Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, he instituted the Passover for the people of God. And it says here that he kept this Passover. How did he do it? By sprinkling the blood. We know this story. We're at the Passover. It was instituted. God told Moses that what he needed to do was to bring a Passover lamb, to kill the lamb, to eat the lamb, along with some other items, some unleavened bread and some other things. But but this Passover lamb, the blood was to be shed and they were to eat it. But that blood they were supposed to use specifically for the purpose on putting on on the doorpost on that faithful and fearful night. And so it says in Exodus chapter 12, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts. The Lord will pass over. The door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So Moses is declaring to the people of God put this blood on the doorpost and on the lintel, and through the night, God's going to come through the angel, which some think is Christ. There's not specific evidence of that necessarily in the text. Some think it's Christ, but it's angel of death. This destroyer will come through and kill every firstborn of everyone who does not have the blood on the doorpost of their home. He says the Lord will do that, and those who do have the blood on the doorpost of their home, the Lord will, this destroyer will, this destroyer will pass over their home, thus called Passover. Passover. Oh, that the judgment of God would pass over us. Would take, would go, would not come upon us, but pass over us. This sprinkled blood was significant. Because later on in Exodus 12, it says, At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Mass death, firstborn of every family. 
Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And listen to this verse. This verse is, she causes us to tremble. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Now, I've mentioned this before. Some of you have heard me say this. Do you think the Israelite families, do you think there was a, a child sleeping in his own bed by himself that night? Not at all. Every mom and dad in their right mind would have the baby sleeping with them that night, wouldn't they? The blood on the doorpost, but the baby sleeping with us. Every kid they could get in the bed sleeping right beside them. They wanted to be holding their children that night for the fear of this destroyer. And they were laying there in the night hearing the cries of the firstborn children dying and the mothers crying out because their children are dead. A horrible, fearful night. And yet, brothers and sisters, it was a faithful night. It says that in our passage in, verse, in Hebrews chapter 11, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 28, by faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn, listen to this, might not touch them. Might not touch them. They were fearful of the ability that God had. And they were amazed at the ability that God had for them. In each one of our passages this morning, verse 28, 29, 30, and 31, there is a great work of God. And I want you to notice in each one of these passages, this great work of God to deliver His people was a great work of God that also brought curse and struggle and even death to those who were not of faith. Each one of these passages... It was a great blessing for God's people and a great condemnation for those who were not in faith. So it wasn't this thing where God was blessing His people and then kind of letting everybody else ride. In each one of these passages, we see the ability of God in such a way that His hand was mighty for His people and mighty against those who were not of faith. So we see here this morning this blood that was shed and that was put on the doorpost. Well, how did that work? That doesn't make sense, really, does it? I mean, what, what, what was the, what was really, why was it all that important that there was blood on the doorpost on that night? What did that do? Brothers and sisters, it saved them. It was the, it was the means by which God was asking them to demonstrate their faith. You see, it's not about whether we can figure it out and make it work out in our own minds. It's not whether we can rationally figure all that out. God says, do this by faith. And we as God's people are responsible for doing it by faith, understanding that God demonstrates and puts forth the means. In other words, this point this morning, faith to keep, is this. Triumphant faith, hear this, trusts in the means that God has ordained. Triumphant faith trusts in the means that God has ordained. God ordained a means to save His people on that Passover night. It was to shed that blood, to put it on the doorpost, and God says, do this and you will be saved. Well, Lord, it doesn't make sense. Give me more data. No, trust me. You see, the Lord institutes the means. We are responsible for being faithful, and we can demonstrate our faith in God by doing what He asks us to do, even if it doesn't make sense. In the same way this morning, brothers and sisters, I think it's not a very far jump, is it? 
for us to ask the question, how does a little piece of tasteless bread and a small cup of juice do anything for us? It's the means that God has given to us to demonstrate our faith, isn't it? It's the exact same thing. It's, it's ridiculous to the world outside of faith that this piece of bread and this cup does anything. But it's the means that God has ordained. And he says that when we come and we take this bread and we take this cup and we, and we eat it by faith, God says, trusting in me, what will God do? He will deliver us on that fearful and faithful day of judgment. Just as he did his people back in the time of Exodus. You see, God is triumphant to deliver his people of faith. So triumphant faith trusts in the means that God has ordained. And in this case, God ordained that this blood be sprinkled on the doorpost. This morning, God has ordained and he's given the means for us to come and take of his bread and take of his cup. And by faith, we take it and we will be delivered. Why? Because there's, is there power in that blood? Is there power in that, in the, or in that juice or power in that, in that, in that uh, bread? Not at all. It's what God has given to us as the means by which we are to be faithful and demonstrate our faith. And so we trust in the Lord. We don't know how it works. We don't know why it's there other than God's given it to us. We're going to trust him. We're going to trust his means that he's ordained by faith. Second heading, faith to cross over. Faith to cross over, verse 29. Triumphant faith trusts in the path that God has given. You hear that? Triumphant faith trusts in the path that God has given to us. We see this here in verse 29, this faith to cross over. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Now, we are very familiar with the story. Hal read it for us this morning, the crossing of the Red Sea. And it's an amazing story in and of itself. And what's truly amazing is that God's people had just been just seeing God's amazing power. This story of the crossing of the Red Sea is Exodus 14, right? Exodus 14. You may want to read that a little bit later. Exodus 12 was when the Passover took place. So we're not very far time-wise. They've just gotten out of Egypt. They're heading out of, out of Egypt. They're, they're on their way now. And they come to the banks of the Red Sea with the Egyptians pressing in from behind them. And they've been given this amazing barrier to what God had called them to do. And so what happens? Exodus 14 verse 10 says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. So they're at the banks of this Red Sea, and the people of Israel seeing the Pharaoh and his army coming at them. They cry out to the Lord, and this is what they say. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is, the, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Do you hear what they're asking? Leave us alone so that we can serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. It's amazing. Our hearts. We believe the lie that bondage is security. We believe the lie that bondage, I'd rather be in Egypt 
as a slave, and, and I'm secure and comfortable. My needs are being met. Everything around me is what I, what's familiar to me. I'd rather be in Egypt where all that familiarity, all that supposed security, all of that, all of that, um, that uh, comfort of, of, of all the things that are around me that are easy and nice, I'd rather be in bondage with that security than have the freedom of God and be standing at the banks of the Red Sea. That's what the Egyptians are saying. That's what you and I say. We so often are crying out to God saying, I want to go back to live my life the way I wanted to live it, in the bondage that I had. I'm tired of all these, all these struggles and difficulties. I want to forfeit it all. So what is God doing? Has he brought his people out to the Red Sea just so that they can die at the foot of the Red Sea? Has he brought them out of Egypt and shown his mighty great hand so that they can die at the Red Sea? It goes on in Exodus 14, verse 13. It says, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Now Moses has no idea what God's going to do. But he's confident that God's not going to receive glory from a bunch of dead people, a bunch of dead people of God at the shore of the, of the Red Sea. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. Verse 14 is amazing. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Nothing in us wants to be silent and still when we see the barrier in front of us. When we see the obstacles to follow Christ. Nothing in us wants to say, you know what, this is God's battle, not mine. Everything in us wants to put our hand to the task and wants to do something. Moses' words to his people were, God will deliver us. Just be still. Be silent. And our desire for comfort, we seek to avoid these kind of circumstances. We seek to not pursue this reckless faith that seems to put us out on the edge, that brings us out of our bondage, but nonetheless brings us to a place where it's not comfortable or secure or easy. We don't want to step out there. Why? Because it's hard out there. It's difficult out there. We'd rather stay in our comfortable bondage than to pursue God by faith. You see, get this. There are no bridges in the Bible. When red seas are to be taken, when red seas are barriers, God doesn't provide a bridge. He doesn't even provide for us in our struggles and difficulties and conflicts. He doesn't provide a way for us to go over those difficult times. He doesn't provide a way, does he, to go around those difficult times. You know what God does with his people? He says, trust me, and I'm going to send you through it. I'm going to send you through the valley of the shadow of death, but I will be with you. But I'll be with you. And I don't like that. I, I, Lord... Send me around, please. Detour. I'd love that path instead of the one through the middle of the, of the Red Sea. No. God says, you, you can trust in you going around the sea. You can trust in you if I build a bridge and let you go over it. You can only trust in me if you're going to go through it. So God sends us through it, brothers and sisters. So often he sends us through the difficult, dangerous terror of the Red Sea with the walls on both sides, wondering if they're going to collapse at any time. We've been in that kind of conflict, haven't we? Where we, at any moment, this thing can fall all to pieces. 
but I'm going to trust the Lord in the middle of it. So what happens? It says in our text, verse 29, they crossed over the sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. We don't get this in Sunday school, but the end of that story actually ends like this. Exodus 14, verse 30 and 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. There's not any coloring pages for the kids of dead Egyptians' corpses washing up on the shore, is there? None. But that's what happened. There were dead Egyptians washing up on the shore. And it says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. They drowned. They were destroyed. Is God able to overcome these obstacles that seem insurmountable? Well, if you're trying to go around it, or if you're trying to ask God, Lord, give me a bridge so that I don't have to go through this, but over it or around it or by it, the Lord says, I'm going to send you through it. Trust me. Have faith. And you'll see that the Lord will triumph. What's the difference between the people of God going through the Red Sea and the Egyptians going through the Red Sea? Our passage is there's one difference. One did it by faith. And the other did it by their own strength and their own merit. In fact, we when, when Hal read this morning, did you notice that it spoke of their, their mighty chariots being bogged down in the mud? All of their ingenuity, all of their power, all of their strength. Brothers and sisters, do you so often feel overwhelmed by, let, let's, let's be honest, the government? You know, what, what's what's going to happen politically? What's going to happen economically? There's some pretty big pieces that are moving and shaping and changing, and it's affecting all of us, isn't it? Are we going to be able to withstand this, this amazing thing that's happening among these political powers and the economic today, economics today? By faith, brothers and sisters, we will. By faith, we can trust the Lord, and we can know that no, no mighty power of government or politics or anything else can thwart God's will, and specifically God's people. Slavery, slavery is secure, but it's not faithful. <laughs> Wanting to go back to Egypt and the familiarity of all of the that's there, that's not faithful, brothers and sisters. What God is leading us to is something far greater. It's kind of like the, uh, the lion Aslan in, uh, in uh, Chronicles of Narnia. The, the life lived by faith, it's not safe, but it's good. It's not safe, but it's always good. So triumphant faith, trust in this path that God has given to us. This path that God has given to us that wouldn't be the path we would choose, but it's the path God has given for us. Heading number three. Faith to conquer. Faith to conquer is in verse 30. By faith, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Now, we're jumping now to Joshua. We were just in Exodus. Now we jump to Joshua. Joshua chapter 6 specifically is this story, verse, uh, verse 30 of our passage here. Joshua chapter 6 is where this story is told. It's talking about the walls of Jericho falling. Now, the amazing truth here is not that the walls fell. It's how they fell. <laughs> because uh, cities were conquered then 
And the fact that the walls fell was probably a very typical strategy for cities to be conquered. There were probably thousands of ways in the, uh, in, in, in the rule book or war books um, for you to conquer and take a city. Now, note this, too, just kind of as a, as a side thing. I think a lot of us forget these people that are coming into uh, the beginning of Joshua to take these cities and to be warriors and to take this land. These guys were, um, well, the first, their dads, their parents were basically pyramid builders. They can make bricks really well, but they didn't know how to throw them probably, right, to kill people. And then the, the children of that generation were, 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 were basically wanderers in the wilderness. What did they do? Well, they, they, they basically lived. They survived basically in the wilderness is all they could do. None of them were trained warriors. So God's bringing this group who was never trained to be an army of any sort into a land and saying, okay, now take these people that have fortified cities and have all of these things already in place to take care of themselves. And so... It was very unconventional what God asked them to do. God asked them to circle and circle the city for seven days. And so it says here in our passage in verse 30, it says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And how do walls fall after being encircled for seven days? Well, this faith that conquers, this triumphant faith, this triumphant faith trusts the work that God has called us to. This triumphant faith is a faith that trusts the work that God has called us to. The work that God has called us to. And in this case, God had given Joshua and the people of God a work to do that sounded very unconventional. Very impractical, actually. As Joshua chapter 6, verse 2, And, and the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city. Now, it's interesting that God tells them, this, this city has a, has a king, and they have mighty men of valor in that city. There was no mighty men of valor among the Israelites. There, was, there wasn't the, the wonderful uh, men there. But God goes on to say to Joshua and tells Joshua to tell the people of God, You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. So they're walking around the city for six days once. On the seventh day... They walk around the city seven times and the walls fall. Very unconventional. Not in the manual for war strategy at all. The Lord gave them the city. The walls fell after they blew their trumpets and shouted to the top of their lungs. God made this thing happen. Why? Because they were faithful to this work. Well, was this work practical? Not at all. Was this work something that made sense to them, exactly what they needed to do? It didn't seem to come together exactly how they could take this city, but walking around it, marching around it seven or for six days and then the seventh day, didn't all come together for them. But it says here specifically in verse 30 that the walls of Jericho fell after they had encircled them for seven days. The question I have for you is this. What has the Lord called you to do with your life? I mean, in the future. I get that question a lot, specifically, mostly from a lot of younger people. But then, you know, all along the way, we begin asking that question in our own hearts, even as we get older. What, what does the Lord really want from me? And the answer I typically tell people and I think is helpful here is this. Know that faithfulness today, no matter how mundane or unimportant it may seem, will prepare us for whatever God has planned for us in the future. You see, sometimes dads, let me speak to you specifically, 
Sometimes, dads, you, um, you think pursuing your career in the future and what God has for you in this big, wonderful plan to make all these wonderful widgets and have all these things, we think that's what God wants for us because that will help our family the most. When God has called us as dads to love our children and teach them to fear God and love Him. It happens through menial, almost unimportant things like family worship and investing in your sons and in your daughters, teaching them to honor the Lord and to love them. You see, that doesn't sound very practical. You're not going to get that from a book today in the secular world of how to raise children. Teach them to fear and love God, to worship Him. But it's the way that God has ordained. He's given us, dads, that work. To train up our children. It looks pretty mundane. In fact, um, I'll be honest, my, my time with my family and family worship looks far more like a, a cat fight than something that should happen in heaven. I mean, it really does. Most of the time. I mean, it's, it's like a cage match instead of a celestial you know, time when the light from heaven shines down on our home. It doesn't happen. It's, it's usually um, bickering and screaming and who's going to sit beside mom and why are you sitting there? And it, it, you know, just I just want to give up on it. But the Lord said that through these mundane, impractical, almost unimportant seemingly events, God's going to use it to do what? To make the Jericho walls fall and to plant faith and love and fear into the hearts of our children. Can we trust that by faith? We can do it the same way that, God, that God's people did back in the time of Jericho. Is God able to, with this, as I mentioned earlier, this tsunami of the world and its influence coming at our family, can we do something as simple as regularly commit a time to spend to encourage our children toward Christ, read Scripture, pray with them, spend time with them, turn them to the Lord? Will God use that? Absolutely, by faith. Moms, I want to encourage you as well that the regular routine that seems to go completely unnoticed. The opportunities when you can wipe noses and run kids here and there. Um, the, the privilege you have to be able to do those things, to be a mom that God's called you to be. Don't ever see that as the thing you do on the side and everything else you've got to kind of take care of to do things that are important. But this other stuff like being a mom is, is to this side. God has called you to be a mom. And through those regular careful ways that you can love your children and care for them and, and do these things that nobody sees, honestly. God's using it, just like the men walking around the wall. Students, I want to encourage you as well to know that your desire to pursue whatever God has for you in the future is a wonderful pursuit. Success is a wonderful thing, but faithfulness is success. And so whatever God has for you, I promise you, well, let me back up. Whatever God has for you, students, I I guarantee you it is not as important. Your faithfulness is more important than your GPA. Your faithfulness is more important than the grade that you're getting here or there. Your ability to love those who are around you, the young and the old, your faithfulness is more important than the things that so often we think are necessary for success. God will take care of those other things. So all of that I want to say, dads, we so often get really hung up on mortgage, don't we? we got to pay that thing. And, I mean, they don't want a spiritual, well, you know, as soon as God gives me the money, I'll give it to you. They, they don't, the bank doesn't play that way, do, do they? Moms, so often you have things you've got to get done. And students, you've got to get those tests taken, right, and do well on them. 
But at the end of the day, I don't want you to forget that in those practical ways that God has called you to be called in different things, know this, that faithfulness is more important. And we need to guide and direct our hearts and our lives toward faithfulness. These kinds of things is ways that we can live by triumphant faith, trusting the work that God has called to us, called for us to do. The work that God's called us to do so often isn't what we think it needs to be. God's people during the time of Joshua would have taken all kinds of other ways to take that city, right? But instead they chose the way that God had given to them to do the impractical, unconventional way of taking the city, and the Lord delivered them. And in that way, I want to encourage you in the same way. Fourth point. Fourth point. Faith to receive. Triumphant faith trusts in the words from God. Triumphant faith trusts in the words from God. You see, not everyone perished in that city when the walls fell on that day. Not everyone perished. There was a remnant in God's mercy and grace. See, we've been working through the book of uh, chapter 11 of Hebrews, and we've, we've seen and we've considered with awe, really, guys like Abel and Enoch and Noah. What, what amazing faith of an Enoch or a Noah. Enoch taken by God, Noah building that boat. We've benefited greatly, and we would benefit if we meditated on the faith of two uh, uh, husband and wife called Abraham and Sarah, wouldn't we? Spend some time lingering there on Abraham and Sarah and their faith. What an amazing example of faith among those two. We've looked over the last several weeks at the giants of our faith called the patriarchs of Isaac and Jacob and Joshua. We've even been humbled last week as we were encouraged by the faith of Moses who refused Egypt and all that it had. And Joshua who stood in a very difficult time just a minute ago as we looked at that as he was encircling that city, trusting the things of God. These amazing people, heroes and heroines of the faith. And now we come to a woman who's not even an Israelite, who's a Gentile. Who every place where her name occurs in the scriptures... She gets a title. Verse 31, by faith, Abra, uh, excuse me, by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient. What a title. She did not perish with those who were disobedient. You see, she was a prostitute. Wouldn't, that, wouldn't you say that probably would qualify her as being disobedient? Wouldn't you say that should qualify her for perishing, for deserving that? And the answer is yes. That sin, that sin is, like all other sin, the consequence of that is perishing and disobedience is what it's called. But this lady's here this morning, brothers and sisters, and this is where the passage just became very precious to me. This is what we call sovereign grace. God reached into a pagan, godless city and drew out the prostitute and her family to say, look what I'm able to do. I can save to the uttermost. 
I can draw out the most despised and set aside of all people. And God does it by his his sovereign almighty grace. You see, without stories like this, I fear that we will begin to think ever so slightly that we're saved by faith that we give to God instead of a faith that is given to us by God. You see, up to this point, we can, we can easily see how this faith was kind of something that these people were giving to God. But we find out here in Rahab that that's not the case at all. Brothers and sisters, if faith is faith, then faith is not a gift we give to God, but it's a gift that God gives to us. Faith, hear this, faith is a grace. And this is a story of sovereign, amazing, wonderful, abundant grace. Oh, how God can save. You see, we may say that we're saved by grace. But we deny it not by rejecting this grace, but by assuming that somehow God has saved us because we are more humble, more careful, more smart, more willing to love God, more of a treasure. We assume that, and in so doing, we deny the very existence of grace itself. That is not grace, that's self-righteousness, and that's what God saved us from. (laughs) That's self-righteousness when we begin thinking that we're saved because of something we've been able to offer to God somehow. When we really get grace, when we really begin to feel this understanding that we have been saved by grace through faith, and all of that is a gift from our Almighty God that He has given to us, that we don't give to Him, that we are recipients of that. We can see the story in Rahab and say, Rahab was a prostitute. And you know what? She did not perish with those who were disobedient. Why? Because God's amazing grace came in and her, she by faith, she by faith trusted the words of God. And we can sing. See, this grace, when it's truly in our hearts, that's why singing is such an important part of our worship service. When we get grace, our hearts are lightened, our burden is lifted, and we want to sing of this grace. As we did this morning when we sang about God's presence. Come, you saints, lift up your heads to find the hand of grace. Has carried you from Satan's grasp And brought you to this place where all designs of flesh will fail. They will fail, brothers and sisters. You don't believe that often enough. All designs of flesh will fail and still His grace remains. For purposing His own good will, the Lord has come to save. That's the kind of songs we sing when we realize that grace is all of God given to us. As people who don't deserve it, that only deserve this perishing and this disobedient lifestyle. And yet the Lord has brought us out. You see, brothers and sisters, Rahab here is not an accident. It's not a blip on the screen. It's not some, some passing thought. Rahab here is to remind us this morning that she is in this passage this morning. Exactly for the same reason why you're sitting in your chair this morning. You are sitting here this morning and not with all the other world that is not pursuing God by faith through Christ because of grace. She is in this story and you are in this seat this morning because of grace, brothers and sisters. Amazing, astonishing, 
sovereign grace. Hallelujah to the Lamb who was slain that we might pursue our God, not for with our own efforts and wants. Satan's greatest, Satan's greatest effort for us is to say, you know what, you're, you're not good enough. You're, you, you deserve to perish. You, you need to understand how sinful your heart is. And everything in your heart believes it, doesn't it? Because your heart is sinful. You do go after your own desires and wants. You do create your own self-righteous lifestyles to say, this is what I'm going to give to God as my gift to Him. And it's filthy rags. Brothers and sisters, let us abandon our efforts and approach the God of our scriptures. It's called a throne of grace, isn't it? Let's approach the throne of grace with confidence because that's the only way we can in Jesus Christ. We see here the latter part of this verse says that by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient. Why? Why was it that she did not perish? I want us to see this this morning. Why was it that Rahab did not perish? It says here in our passage, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. She had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now, this is a difficult phrase for us. Most of the older translations um, translate this word here, friendly welcome, as received. However, the difficulty here is that this word means more than just that. And so the newer translations actually translate it welcome because the idea is that it's not just receiving in the sense that it's taking possessions of one thing, one's things or obtaining something from somebody else. That's the idea of receiving. The idea actually has more of a broader meaning. This very word actually occurs for us, and I want you to listen here just kind of to get the sense here of this understanding. This word occurs for us in Matthew chapter 10 where the apostles are sent out by Jesus, and he says, go out into the, into the land and, 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 and preach the gospel. And then in Matthew 10, Jesus is talking to him. He says, if anyone will, here's the word, receive you or listen to your words, shake off the, or excuse me, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. You see how that receiving isn't just taking possessions and that's it. There seems to be more to it than that. Jesus goes on in Matthew chapter 10, verse 40. He says, whoever receives you, talking to the apostles, and, excuse me, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. The idea here is this receiving isn't just a obtaining of possessions, but it's a accepting the message that these people are bringing. It's, 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 it's being willing to take and receive and welcome not only the persons, but also the message, what they're standing for. And so it has a broader meaning than just bringing them in. And so what we see here is that our translation tries to translate it a welcoming or a friendly welcome, meaning that they receive this message as well as the people. In Joshua chapter 2, we find that Rahab not only received these men into her home, but she accepted their message. And I want you to listen to this. It's a little longer portion of text, but Joshua chapter 2, I want you to hear this as Rahab goes up to her rooftop 
to talk to these men after the, the men of the city had come to her house and said, hey, there are men that are, that are spies that are seeking us out. And, um, and she has hidden, hidden them on a rooftop. And she, she basically shuns them off, gets them away. And then she goes to the roof to talk to these spies. Before the men lay down, Joshua 2, verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land. You hear that confession of Rahab? And that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we, do you hear what she's saying? We, the people here in Jericho, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. You hear that testimony of Rahab to these men? We've heard about what God has been doing, the Red Sea, and how you have conquered and destroyed kings and kingdoms. And our heart is melted. Why? Because your God is the God of the heavens, the God above of, of all the earth. Now then, listen. She says, now all of us in the city have heard these things. We acknowledge that your God has gone before you. So they not only knew these facts, they not only knew cognitively, but they also trusted them to the point that these men were fearing. The Jericho people were fearing God, knowing that this God was mighty and working in an amazing way. But Rahab, Rahab comes, and in verse 12 of Joshua chapter 2, Now then, please, swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, that word for dealing kindly is the word hesed. It's the word steadfast love in our ESV translations. It's the, it's the covenant love that God shows his people. And she says, she uses this word, she says, As I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign. She wants to be delivered. See, all the people in Jericho knew the facts. They approved these facts to the point that they feared. Rahab came and said, I want to be delivered. Show me a sign. So the men, the spies, give her a sign. In Joshua chapter 2, verse 18, Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie a scarlet cord to the window through which you let us down. Because they let them down that street. If you haven't read this story, go back and reread it. It's a wonderful story. I wish I could do that this morning, but I can't. And you shall gather into your house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. And they say, basically, keep all of your household in your home. We will destroy the entire city, and we will deliver your, your, your family out of that city. And to which she says to them, and she said, according to your words, so be it. And then she sent them away, and they departed. So this morning, let me ask you, have you received or welcomed the message of who God is and what he's accomplished for you in Jesus Christ? Have you received that message? Not just that you know the facts like the people that are in the city of Jericho. Because see, acknowledging the facts in Christ, that's not saving faith. Acknowledging that Jesus lived and died, that he was a man who called himself God, knowing the facts that's in your Bible doesn't make you saved. That's just acknowledging facts. So often people think that that's all it is. Even the demons know that and they shudder. You see, 
Are you willing to not only acknowledge but also approve these facts? In other words, in this case, in the city of Jericho, these people were fearful. They knew God had done these awesome and amazing things, and they had proved that God was, in fact, indeed a strong and mighty God. You may be sitting here this morning knowing that God, Jesus Christ, has come, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, even trusting and approving the fact that he was rose from the dead. Everything makes sense for that. You know, that's not saving faith. That's not saving faith. That's not the receiving or the welcoming that's being mentioned here that Rahab did. You see, saving faith not only acknowledges that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he lived a sinless life and that he died on the cross and that when he died on the cross, Scripture says that he bore the wrath and the penalty of sin for those who would place their faith in him and that he rose again on the third day. It's not only acknowledging those facts, not only approving that those in fact did take place and that it causes some kind of uh, feeling in your heart and some kind of understanding for you to be here this morning, that kind of approval. Here's the third thing that's absolutely crucial. Trusting in it. Banking your life on Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Brothers and sisters, those who do have faith, we all know the difference, don't we? We have a difficult day. And we are living our life today, for example, in, in just very, we're struggling. And your spouse, well-meaning, comes to you and says, listen, Jesus is on his throne. He's God, King of kings, Lord of lords. There's nothing to be worried about. Doesn't that fix everything? Immediately, your heart perks up and everything's great, isn't it? It's a big difference between knowing those facts, and most of us do. And here it is, friends, believing in them. That believing in them, that trusting in them, is what only God can do through his Holy Spirit in us. My prayer this morning is that if you've come here this morning and you've lived your entire life thinking that you were a Christian, that you were, you were one who was saved by the grace of God because you, you acknowledge facts about God, never once actually trusting in him, believing in him, placing your, your life into his care, saying that if, if Jesus Christ and him crucified is not true, everything else is lost. This morning, I want to call to you, ask you, have you received this message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified? For there is only one way, brothers and sisters. Look at our passage here in verse 30 of chapter 11. There's only, excuse me, 31. 31. There's only one way for us not to perish with those who are disobedient. And that is by receiving by faith Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He has bore the penalty of wrath and sin for those who will trust in him. Come to Christ, brothers and sisters. Don't just acknowledge him. Don't just approve this message as if it's some nice story that you have heard and that you accept in some some cognitive way. But actually trust that all of your hope, all of your joy, all of your peace, all of your comfort, everything that you are is bound up in Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what I'm asking this morning. So this morning as we approach this table, we're going to approach this table trusting in the means that God has instituted, right? Just as we talked about at the beginning, the blood that was on the doorpost, we're going to trust this cup and this bread to be the means by which we're demonstrating our faith. We're going to trust the path that God has provided for us. Each one of us have gone through barriers and we're going to go through more and God's going to send us through the middle of those trusting in Him.
By faith, we're going to trust the work that God has given to us. So often it doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem right. God, there must be other things I need to be doing to prepare my life to do what you want me to do. Amazing and awesome things. No, God's called you to be faithful to the callings and things that God has given to you. Simply and carefully put your hand to the task and do what God's called you to do. And then fourthly, trusting the words and the message that our God has given to us.